Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. In 2018, Helen King was diagnosed with HER2-positive breast cancer. She was 37 years old and had no family history. Everything happened quickly once she was diagnosed. Two weeks later, after a biopsy, she had her right breast removed and 24 lymph nodes removed. Then she endured 18 months of treatment. She says cancer has had a profound impact on her life, and we're going to find out more just how. Helen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So you are where? Tell everyone. We hear an accent. (laughs) I'm in Auckland in New Zealand on May um, 8th. (laughs) May 8th? (laughs) Oh my gosh. So on my bucket list, I just want to put it out there. I've, I've been to different parts of Australia, but not to New Zealand yet, but on my bucket list. So tell us, your cancer journey was fairly recent. So take us back there and, you know, tell us about how you were diagnosed. Did you have any symptoms? Um, As you said in your bio, no family history. So take us back to to that time. What happened? Yeah. So it's funny because good old Facebook likes to remind you of what was happening (laughs) three years. (laughs) It's funny because I, a photo came up um, and you know, from this time three years ago. And it's really strange to me because I look at that photo and I think, gosh, I had three tumors in my breast and had no idea, you know, at that time. And, you know, within a few weeks, everything would change rapidly. And so, you know, being 37 at the time, I, you know, had no reason to be getting um, mammograms or anything like that. Um, so I just found a lump in my breast by chance um, in the shower. And it was actually the day before I was starting a new job. So it was, you know, I didn't really think about too much about it. And I thought, oh, it's probably just, I don't know, a cyst or initially went to an after hours doctor um, on the Tuesday and they said, oh, it's probably just non-lactating mastitis because you don't have children and maybe that lump is an abscess. Um, and they said, oh, you know, you could you could go get an ultrasound just to check. But there was no urgency. There was no, you need to go and get it checked. Fast forward a few weeks, I did end up going and getting an ultrasound. And I knew during that ultrasound that it wasn't cysts. I just knew by the the <laughs> the sonographer's demeanor that it was um, really? something. Yeah. And then I had a mammogram on the Monday, biopsy on the Tuesday, and then I think within two weeks I was having my mastectomy <laughs> and those, and and a lymph node clearance. So it happened very quickly for me. Who told you it was cancer? Where were you? Was it, were you there in the room with the doctor? Was it a phone call? Yeah. So what happened was I, I guess the, the ultrasound results must've gone back to my GP. Um, and I got a phone call that day from the 
GP practice saying, Dr. Borthwick wants you to come in and you need to bring support people. So he's like, hmm. <laughs> That's what they said, bring support people? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I'd had my mammogram that day. And so by the time I saw her, so basically she saw me at the end of the day and I took my parents and she said, um, it's very likely that you have breast cancer. And I was very lucky that I was able to get in with a specialist the next day. And it's, I mean, I guess it's interesting because they, they can't confirm cancer until they have those biopsy results. So I had, you know, the biopsy and things the next day. Um, and I think those test results came back really quickly. Um, and then it was, yeah, the, the surgeon confirmed that, yes, it is definitely cancer and you're these are the these this is the treatment that we recommend for you so it was yeah it was very very quick and I I do need to point out for me I have um private health insurance because we we do have a public system here and so I was lucky in that respect because I was able to get in and have scans and biopsies and, and consultations very quickly Thank you for pointing that out because I was wondering, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I, I don't know because it's so different here. Did you end up starting the new job? I'm just curious yeah. what happened with the job. Yeah, I had, I started it and then I had to, <laughs> I had to tell them with, you know, two weeks that, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I have cancer <laughs> and it was, they were really good. They were very good about the whole situation, but it was yeah, it was very strange. It was a very strange experience. Yeah. And what what did you do at the time? Um, I well, my background's in journalism, but I had moved into a communications role, so it was like a I guess a corporate communications role. Did they give you any options about the mastectomy? Because I've heard several stories now where some patients are given more options, you know, or it was just no, we need to do this. This is it. Yeah, so it was definitely a mastectomy because I had three tumours um, in my breast and the, he basically said there's no, you know, you, we can't do a lumpectomy or anything like that. And so, uh, yeah, the the treatment option was um, mastectomy and take some lymph nodes out. Um, yeah, and I haven't had reconstruction either. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was the treatment. <laughs> Okay, you didn't have some lymph nodes taken out. You had 24, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about that, your choice not to have reconstruction, because I think it's really good for women to hear these stories. Um, It wasn't necessarily choice. So because of the size of my breasts, um, the plastic surgeon that I saw said that a, you know, the dip or the tram flat reconstruction was really my best option because that's how they would be able to really achieve a symmetry because they wouldn't have been able to do that with a, um, like a breast implant. Um, but because of my BMI, I wasn't able to have reconstruction. Um, so basically (laughs) I was too fat to have reconstruction, but they took my, yeah, but they removed my breast. And so whoa, I had, whoa, wait, wait. Yeah. So the health insurance wouldn't approve it? The doctors wouldn't. So yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. Okay. <laughs> Trying to like wrap my brain around this and help people understand and, and help me understand. So they said this is what you can do for reconstruction. Yes. But 
you'd your, have to. But your BMI is too high, so never mind, you can't do it. Yeah, so basically what they said was, um, yeah, because my BMI was too high, that doing that sort of surgery was too deemed too high a risk. And so I would have to wait two years post, um, I guess, diagnosis to be able to have reconstruction. Um, and then I would have to lose, I think, 17 kilos to be eligible to have it. I've chosen not to. I just, I feel like now my body has been through enough um, to, <laughs> to sort of have another major surgery. And, and the, the other thing that is very interesting, and I don't know what it's like um, in other countries, but there I was never, I wasn't offered to go flat either. I wasn't offered to have both breasts off. But some, some, no, no. I asked, we asked about it and the surgeon said, you know, they, he doesn't, he didn't recommend it because it was a perfectly healthy, I guess, tissue and things. But now having, only having one breast, I actually really wish I had been given the option just to go flat. Because then, oh yeah, I just think it would have been a much easier option in a lot of ways to not have either breast. Your parents were with you. What was their reaction to the diagnosis? Um, oh, they were very concerned. Yeah, very concerned. And I guess it was a, it was probably a shock because I'm the youngest as well of three. So, you know, I guess you don't think that's going to happen yeah but they it was I think it was a major shock for everyone the only person in our family that has had cancer is my mother but it was com completely unrelated to um, breast cancer or um, you know any associated cancers and, you know we don't have the BRCA gene or anything like that it really did come out of nowhere talk to us about that 18 months of treatment I mean I've heard of four months and six months and then I know a lot of women here in the U.S. who are on a five-year mm. regimen afterwards what was that 18 months what did that look like for you it was pretty grueling at times so I I had the mastectomy and then I had fertility treatment because I hadn't had children and in New Zealand if you're under 40 and hadn't had children um, I was publicly funded to have um, my eggs harvested and, and frozen for a later date. So I went, yeah, so I had mastectomy, fertility treatment, and then straight into chemotherapy. And so that was around about four months of very intensive chemotherapy. Um, and at the same time, I in my second phase of, um, of the chemotherapy, I started Herceptin, which is, you know, the, the drug... Um, that really does help with her two positive breast cancer. And I also had another drug called pertuzumab, which we paid for because it's not funded unless you have metastasized her two positive cancer. So this is another major thing here in New Zealand is how the way we, we fund drugs. Um, and then I had radiation at the, you know, right at the end. Um, so I had about, I had a few weeks in between chemo finishing, starting radiation, and then the Herceptin infusions went on for a year. So it was, yeah, it was a very long process. 
I was still in that system. I was still, you know, every three weeks going to the hospital and, and having my infusions. And it was still, you know, lifestyle revolved around doctors and needles and and all of that sort of stuff. So it it really did feel like a um like quite a long, grueling process. And can you tell people, um, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it by the generic names. I'm just going to say <laughs> Keytruda, but it's an immunotherapy drug. So you, you said you, you had to pay for that one yourself. Yes. How, how are we able to do that? And you took that, you said, at the same time as Herceptum? So the way things are funded here is so we have our public system. Oh, how would I describe it? So we have, a, I guess, a government funding organisation called Pharmac, and they decide what drugs um, will be funded. And just for context, in some ways this is it's great. In, in some circumstances it does work really well, but in others it doesn't. And so, um, for instance, for bowel cancer, we haven't had any new drugs funded in 20 years. Yeah, and so people are constantly having to fundraise for things like Keytruda or, you know, the new um, bowel cancer or cancer drugs that are probably available or given in other countries, you know, Australia, UK, US, Canada. Um, but here we take a very long time to fund things. So Pajita is a new-ish drug that uh, has had very good success with her to positive breast cancer and other types of cancer. And so I guess it wasn't, it was maybe a year before I got cancer, Pharmac decided, yes, we will fund it, but we will only fund it under certain, certain circumstances. And mine wasn't, it, which is good because I didn't have metastasized breast cancer. So, you know, in some ways that's a positive. Um, but it cost, for four infusions, it was $20,000. <gasps> What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. How were you able to do that? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I was very lucky. My parents paid for it and I didn't, there was no question for them. They, they were not wealthy, but we, you know, my parents are retired school teachers, but they said, yeah, we, we want to pay for <laughs> pay for it. And the interesting wow. thing is, is that, I mean, it's so new and looking at the stats, the stats aren't, weren't like, oh, we'll all increase chances by 50%. It was like, this might give you a 3% increase in your out, you know, and I, I guess when you, when people have had cancer, they'll understand that um, everything comes down to percentages and you will take whatever percentage right. that you can get. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's how I got it. And uh, yeah, it's very common in New Zealand for people to, to fundraise for, um, yeah, for treatments that aren't funded. I mean, I knew I was going to learn new things today, but uh, but I didn't. I didn't know that. I didn't know you. I didn't know there was both private and public health care, but also just um, this sort of reluctance or delay in funding certain drugs. Um, so what happened after eighteen months? Because that was your life, right? I mean, that yeah. was a huge part of your life. So what was it like when that part was over? It was strange, and I and it's really funny because people outside of, I guess, people who, you know, have watched you go through it, and I've often talked about this, that I think there's this assumption that 
when the treatment ends and your hair grows back and you're, you know, getting on with life, um, that, oh, it's all over now, you must be really happy. In some ways, yeah, of course, it's a, it's a relief not to be going and having infusions every three weeks, but it's a, it's quite a frightening time because, you know, you're, you're kind of spat out the other end of the system where for months you have, you know, an oncologist, um, nurses and, and all these people kind of um, there and then you have nothing and you're kind of yeah. expected to pick your life up and carry on. And I really struggled with that. And I've often said to people that I think the hardest time in, from my, in my experience is actually afterwards. Because when you're in it, you're in survival mode and you're trying to get through this, you know, this really challenging time. Um, but afterwards, it's kind of, you're left in no man's land in a lot of ways. And so I guess the, the something that really helped or changed for me was that we, I went to a, a weekend retreat and it was not really something that I would usually go to, but I guess I was really... Um, yeah, I was really struggling um, emotionally with with life afterwards, and um, it was two Can it was three Canadian people. They, they were sort of um, one was a radiation oncologist, and his wife was a psychologist, and they had a, a chaplain that came with them too. It was just sort of this time where um, most of the people who went to the the retreat I was at were breast cancer survivors or people that had been impacted by breast cancer. And it was just a relief to be able to talk about things and have people understand. And I think, you know, that was the sort of um, start for me of really trying to find spaces where that could happen because I, I think it's really important to be able to talk to people about, you know, this is what it's like, you know, the struggle to go back to work, the ongoing fatigue, the change in your body, the aches and pains and the underlying fear that is this going to come back you are not alone I mean I, I hear this a lot you are not alone and there's just not enough for survivors mm. and it's interesting because in cancer you we don't call survivors survivors we call you alumni yeah. <laughs> and, and we want you to stick around so yeah. um and we're developing more support services for alumni just like an alumni of any university and and we get a lot of feedback about the type of things we need to develop but i think about it um in the sense that when you're going through it this like you said you're in survivor mode mm -hmm. but also you have this whole community surrounding you Mm, right? You yeah. just listed all these doctors and you, and you have sort of a structure. There's a lot of structure in place that you might not even have control over because you have certain appointments on certain days and, yes. and, and then, and all of that's gone. And, and like you said, it's scary. And then you have changes in your body. And I, I think every patient fears it coming back because so mm -hmm. often it does. I'm thinking of a couple of people right off the top of my head who thought they were in the clear and, and it caught them by surprise when it came back. Yeah, you are, you are not alone. Um, how did you find out about the retreat? I mean, I just love that you went to this retreat and, and how did you even know about it? It came up in my Facebook feed and um, just so quite randomly. <laughs> So I, oh, was it random? Now, Helen, you were targeted. <laughs> the algorithms randomly chose me. Um, yeah. 
and that's how it came up and so I emailed the email address on it and um yeah that's how I found out about it it was really interesting because that weekend I felt really good because you know it was a space where we got to talk about things and then after it I, it was kind of oh it just went back to normal because there was nothing in everyday life that was that supportive and um people really struggle with that here as well because there really isn't anything for afterwards and it's very you know I've talked about this a bit recently actually um that I don't think people realize just how much a cancer diagnosis impacts you it's kind of like any type of loss or grief that it doesn't necessarily ever go away you just get better at coping with it and there are five stages to grief and you don't necessarily go through all those stages during your diagnosis you know you you might not experience anger until much later you know you might maybe you didn't ever experience depression and you experience that later I think people who are not part of your inner network who and who really, really don't understand, have never experienced anything like that in their family, they look at it as, well, you lived, you survived. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Woohoo, you know. <laughs> and it's not that I know you're grateful. Um, mm. It's just, like you said, there, there are a lot of challenges after. Yeah. A lot of challenges. Yeah, there really are. Did you go back to the job in communications? I did, but I didn't last very long because I was, I think for me, cancer altered me. I was not the same person anymore and I couldn't work full time and I I still can't work full time. (laughs) Um, And so I was, I found a different job that was, um, you know, less demanding and um, wasn't full time. Um, That gave me a chance to sort of try and, I guess, rest and, and recover and it's and I still am in a way I'm still I I can't work full-time it's just it's I don't know it's almost like I have a lower threshold now of of stress or or demands on me that's okay though you know that right it's okay (laughs) your diagnosis wasn't that long ago I mean no yeah and, and you didn't finish treatment that long ago either so um I mean to put your body through that kind of treatment for over a year that's yeah. A lot. Are you on any um, medication now? Because I know in the U.S. the standard of care for most breast cancer is, um, I think it's tamoxifen. I think that's the drug for X number of years. And so are you on anything like that? No, because I, I didn't have any hormone involvement. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So I, um, I'm not thankfully because, <laughs> because I was put into menopause during my treatment and oh my god (laughs) it's you know it's pretty horrific um and so I do feel somewhat grateful that I haven't had to keep going through that because I know a lot of people really struggle with that element of it is you know the tamoxifen but also and I think this is I guess one of the positives it has mean sorry it has meant that having a family is a possibility because if I had had hormone involvement I would never have been able to have the um, fertility treatment. Do, do you want children? Yeah yeah so I have a um, partner and we've been together I mean we'd actually only been together six months before I got diagnosed with cancer and we oh. yeah. Wow. yeah. 
I know. And so we actually decided to get embryos. Um, not get embryos. That sounds like you go to a shop, get embryos. (laughs) 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 So we decided that we would um have embryos created. Um and that was a huge risk, you know, because a lot of relationships don't last cancer because it is so stressful. It was a bit of a, a risk and a leap of faith to think, okay, well, we'll get embryos um, created. Um, and so we're hoping we can use them this year. I'm having my yearly mammogram soon, so hopefully that will be fine and we'll be able to just, you know, carry on with that next stage of life. How does it feel knowing your mammogram is coming up? Yeah, it's really, it is scary. Like, I, you know, that anxiety that people talk about is very real and, I think because, you know, coming up to an anniversary and even the time of year feels familiar, you know, that for here it's, you know, autumn at the moment and <laughs> <laughs> the weather's turning and just, it, yeah, I guess for me I feel what it was like back then. You know, it's funny, I was talking to someone about this recently that one of the things that a cancer diagnosis does is that you sort of feel like you can't trust your body. And so I feel... Like, I want it to be okay, but there's always that little part of you that says, well, it wasn't okay, so maybe it won't be this time. So it is, it is very difficult to, to kind of trust that, you know, it's going to be fine. It's, and because, you know, recently I met someone who had the exact same diagnosis with me and it's metastasized. And so it's that ongoing sort of fear of, um, do I have this ticking time bomb in me? So that's I, that. All of that stuff comes up leading up to an, uh, your year, yearly scan. I think you told us your worst moment. So, how about telling us what was your best moment in every all of this? <laughs> um, oh, there was one, Helen. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's anything huge. I think it's just little moments where life feels normal again. So we we got a dog last year and I call him my oh. grief dog. <laughs> oh, I love, okay. I love dogs. What kind of dog? What's his name? Uh, he is just a, he's just from the SPCA. So he's a rescue dog. Um, His name's Lenny and he looks like, the best way to describe him is that he looks like Santa's little helper from the Simpsons, but black. Um, so he's part Jack Russell, so he's a bit oh. nutty. And smart. Smart, <laughs> smart. And active and all those sorts of things. Um, and so that has been, just those little things for me have been really good moments where, you know, my partner and I and the dog will be out and just, in, you know, enjoying life. Those little things, that's what's good for me is um, just back to a sort of feeling of normality you know we bought our first home and it's oh. yeah so it, it's kind of I think it's when life feels like it's it's just sort of going and isn't stuck that feels really good to me and in life that's what life is right it's a series yeah. of moments it yeah really is. so what is the one thing you wish you had known at the beginning of your cancer journey Helen oh gosh um I think that everyone responds to it differently and whatever way I responded to it was fine. <laughs> I just wish I'd known that that it was going to be okay and that, mm. 
you don't have to do it any certain way, if that makes sense. Yeah. That does make sense. Yeah. yeah. If you could only do one thing mm. to improve healthcare in New Zealand, what would it be <laughs> and why? Um, I think it would be better funding for access to drugs. That really would be. I mean, there's so many things, but if I have to choose one, um, it it would be to change the funding model and for us to have the access to what the rest of the world has access to. Yeah. I'm so curious about that. I I almost want to just do a deep dive and understand it better because it does sound like that we have more access here in the U.S. Mm. Um, doesn't mean your insurance is always going to cover it, but I, I love that answer. Um, you, you might have to work on that. You might have to. <laughs> yes. Does New Zealand have lobbying? Do you guys have lobbyists? <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, actually, there is something coming up that I'll go to where um, we're doing a protest as such um, because in New Zealand you are worse off if you get if your cancer comes back so we just don't have the access to life extending drugs that we should yeah tell me a little bit more about that so if your cancer comes back statistically so if mine comes back uh, my outcome or my length of life would be shorter than say if I lived in the US excuse me or even Australia um, because of the way that things are funded um, we just don't have the same access to the drugs that you guys have or we have to fundraise and pay for them so, for instance, there's a woman in my town at the moment who has, she has, um, she will die from her cancer. She has an aggressive rare type of stomach cancer. And the um, chemotherapy and another drug she was given haven't worked. And so, basically, she could be given immunotherapy, um, which would give her a little bit more time, especially with her children and her husband, um, but that immunotherapy isn't funded for her type of cancer. Yeah. Now, if she raised the funds like you did, or, she can or pay for it. Yeah. She would. So, so it's out of pocket. Yeah. Got so much work to do. I know. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. All right. Um, well, let's have a little fun. Are you okay. ready for the Thriver yes. rapid fire questions? Yes. <laughs> okay. Beach, desert, or mountains. Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Uh, Rolling Stones. What is one word that best describes you? Uh, Oh, gosh. Vibrant. (laughs) Oh, I love it. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? This, okay, this one stumps people more than anything else. It cracks me up. Like people get really stumped on the last song. Oh, I'd probably something like another one bites the dust by Queen. Oh, oh, I love Queen. Oh, love it. How about the last meal you will eat? Probably a roast chicken meal. Yeah. Last person you want to see? Um. Either my partner or I have to say my animals. <laughs> they're there. Assume they're there. They're there. They're there. They're there. Yeah. Yeah. They're there. Um, the last words you will speak. Oh gosh, that's a hard one. I know I I know I thought about this. Um <laughs> the last words. 
oh, probably don't forget to feed the cat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, and aside from cancer, you what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And you definitely have to tell us about the C word and the C yeah. word radio. Yeah, tell us about that. So I started a podcast last year, um, The C Word, uh, Kiwis Talk About Cancer, and it is a podcast where I talk to other people about how cancer has impacted their lives. And so if um, people who are going through treatment, who have been through cancer or their loved ones, it's just a really good resource um, to listen to other people's experiences and maybe just feel a little bit of connection and normality and um, community. Um, I'm pretty p- proud at the moment because I was actually, the show w- has made the finals in the New Zealand Radio Awards. So pretty pleased that, um, you know, the work that I've put into it has been recognised. But it's also, yeah, I really think it's a, a great resource for people who may be feeling alone in their experience to sort of listen and hear other people's um you know the good the bad the ugly the funny because you know cancer treatment does horrific things to our bodies and sometimes you have to laugh at those things well congratulations thank uh, you on, on yeah that's amazing and that explains why she has this incredible microphone <laughs> if, you, if you're listening you can't see it but incredible microphone and I have like a fancier microphone but I just don't like to mess with it sometimes, but I, sh- I should use it. I should. Um, well, Helen, if people want to reach out to you, what is the best way to reach you? Either on social media. So come and find the, uh, my Facebook page. Uh, it's the C Word, Kiwis Talk About Cancer. Or if you want to get in touch privately, the C Word Radio at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from anyone. All right. Well, we will put those links um, in the workshop inside of Cancer You and also in the show notes for the podcast. Helen, thank you so much for coming on today, um, all the way from New Zealand and (laughs) sharing your story. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.